Thank you, Zach and Becca. Christ exalted is my song. <laughs> wow. Um, there was a time that I did a study abroad in Germany for a couple of months, and during that time was away from church. And what I missed most about being out of my country for that eight weeks was this. Uh, it surprised me how much I missed to be among the saints. And so it's really, really good to see you all. And we're very, very grateful that we get to be back together again. And we want to pray for those who aren't. We are live streaming today for the first time because we want those who are apart from us to be with us in worship, that we can be together in our praise even if we are separated with our bodies. So we are very grateful for this and glad to be back. The summer before my senior year, a good friend of my dad's invited me to go to an entrepreneur boot camp. And so Joe Mancuso took me up to Utah where he was a speaker. And there were lots of sessions and speakers on how to start and run a small business venture, which was my desire at the time. But there was one talk in particular that struck me and I went back and listened to it several times through college and I can still remember a number of his points. And the title of the talk was Lessons I've Learned as an Entrepreneur. And this gentleman was just very honest about a lifetime of good lessons learned and bad mistakes made that we might benefit from his experience. And so he talked about, for example, succeeding in life by helping others succeed. And you'll never do wrong by helping others do well. And just to look around with no agenda other than if there's ever a person that we can help, we want to help for no other reason than it's the right thing to do. And that tends to pay itself back. Uh, but then he shared a mistake he made, more than a couple. <laughs> he turned down the opportunity to have the Pizza Hut franchise for the state of Kansas because he thought that Midwesterners wouldn't eat Italian food. And that turned out to be not a good decision. <laughs> then he turned down the opportunity to run all the Harley David Davidson dealerships in Kansas and Nebraska, which also turned out to be an unfortunate decision. <laughs> and he was very honest and transparent of... I turned down a number of wonderful opportunities. My exhortation to y'all is carefully consider crucial opportunities when they come because they may not come again. And what we're going to see today in our text is a crucial opportunity that Pilate and the Jewish crowd had to deliver Jesus from the hands of the Sanhedrin rather than aiding and abetting them in the murder of the Messiah. And it's going to reveal to us several beautiful truths about our Lord and offer us some practical applications to our life today. So I invite you to resume in our study of the Gospel of Mark, where today we are in chapter 15, discussing the civil trials of Jesus. So last week we looked at the religious trials. There were actually six different trials that our Lord underwent on His way to Calvary. Three religious at the hands of the Jews, three civil at the hands of Pilate, the Roman procurator or a prefect or governor, they mean the same thing, and then also Herod Antipas, who was head of Galilee. So we saw Jesus, or we didn't see, but talked about him before Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, and then he went to Pilate, Herod Pilate. Mark focuses in the civil trial of the appearance of Christ before Pilate, which in the first 15 verses moves in three movements. Jesus tried by Pilate, Jesus offered to Israel, and then Jesus consigned to be crucified. We begin in verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. 
Now, early in the morning can mean toward morning or at morning. It has the idea of first light, which would have been 4.30 in the morning at that time in April in Palestine, or at dawn, 5.30. People wonder why this is. Some think the Jews, having done an illegal tribunal at night, were now having in daylight an official proclamation that would have justified them in the eyes of those who would have raised questions about the legality of hearing Christ in the dark. More likely, they were trying to catch Pilate early because the prefect would have had any hearings he would have had early in the day. And so they are there early, and it has the added benefit of hopefully dealing with Jesus before the Passover crowds gather and swell in earnest. And so the sun rises on its darkest day. And we're reminded of who Jesus' primary antagonists were. And this wasn't some marginal group. This was the religious and political leaders of Israel. This was those who were in charge of the temple and the sacrifices and the law and who represented the nation under the oppressors of Rome. So this was an official opposition of Christ by the official representatives of Israel. And they consult on what to do next, and then they bind Jesus to drag him to Pilate, which is ludicrous if Jesus had not been permitting this. And again, we need to remind ourselves as we see Jesus in this humble estate of how we've seen him revealed and manifested earlier in the gospel, that this is the one who calmed the winds and the waves, this is the one who silenced or cast out demons. This is the one who bound Satan himself in order to plunder his household. This is the maker of heaven and earth that allows himself to be humbled in this way. I was reading this morning in my Bible in a year, the transfiguration and the stark contrast between the Christ we're going to see presented in our text this morning to how he truly was that the angels knew him as the shining one who was manifest in his divine glory, but he allows himself Jesus was no flight risk because he had already determined to accomplish God's will for him to redeem his people. And so they deliver him to Pilate. Now Pontius Pilate was the prefect, which was a position later called procurator. It basically means governor. He was Rome's delegated supervisor over Judea, which would have included Judea, Samaria, and the area of Edom. So this was the official Roman ruler over this part of the globe. Philo, a Jewish historian, described him as inflexible, stubborn, and cruel. Josephus, the historian, recounts that when Pontius Pilate came into Jerusalem to take office, he intentionally bore the military standards with the image of Caesar into the holy places as an intentional offense to the Jews that would not allow any graven images there in the holy city. And then when the Jews protested, he threatened to cut all of their throats. Later, he took money from the temple to pay for an aqueduct. And when they did again protest his action, he sent his soldiers in to attack and to slay many of those who would dare contest his rule. Jesus recounts in the Gospel of Luke how when a group of pilgrims from Galilee went to Jerusalem, he murdered them and mixed their, bloods, mixed their blood with their sacrifices. This is how one modern historian writes, Pilate was by most reasonable estimates someone who was part butcher, part beholden, part anti-Semite, part man of expediency, and part self-made man who worshipped his maker. Isn't that a great line? He was a self-made man who worshipped his maker. He was someone that the Jews could have counted on 
to crucify Christ, even though it must have rankled them to have to go through him to do it, which they did. Because the Jews, even having arrested Jesus and condemned him, did not have the authority to execute him. Capital punishment was a right reserved by the Romans, so they had to go to Pilate, and they go in the early hours, in the early dawn, in order to have him not merely stoned by a Jewish mob, but executed officially by the Roman ruler. Going to Pilate with an accusation of blasphemy would have meant nothing. So if the Jews said, why did you kill the Messiah? They could have said he was a blasphemer, and that would have meant something to a Jew, but not to a Roman. So Luke records for us the three accusations they initially raised that might have merited execution by Pilate. In Luke 23, it says, We found this man, one, misleading or subverting our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He's a rabble-riser, a troublemaker. He's going to shut off taxes, which is what Rome cared about, and he claims to be a king, so he's treasonous because he's raising himself as an authority other than either Caesar or the Caesarian delegate that he had appointed. And Caesar takes, or Pilate takes that seriously. And so he asks him bluntly, are you the king of the Jews? This is a phrase that's only used in Mark 15, but it's used five times. Now, Pilate would have cared about, are you claiming to be a political authority that might have been a threat to Rome? of someone leading the Jews in a riot and a rebellion against Rome. The soldiers will later, later toss this out as a taunt. And we know that when Christ was crucified, this was the accusation marked against his head, the king of the Jews. And you wonder what his tone of voice was. Because here's Pilate in Herod's palace, before the praetorium, in his judicial regalia. And here's this man before him, who even on the best of days would have been humble who even in his triumphal entry entered humbly, but now had been up all night. He had been beaten. He had been slapped. He had been bound. And so you can imagine his clothes, his hair in disarray. You can imagine maybe the spittle still on him. You can imagine the blood and the bruises. And Pilate looking at him and saying, you're the king of the Jews? And it's one of those remarkable contrasts that we get of here's Pilate the judge and Jesus the true judge. Caiaphas the priest, and Jesus the true priest. And Herod the king of the Jews in name, and Jesus the true king of the Jews. And all these beautiful contrasts that show God as he intended his Messiah to be. And so he says, are you the king? And Jesus is equally blunt and direct and says, it is as you say. Uh, in Greek, it's just two words. You said it. <laughs> I am. And he affirms the title. Now, this is very closely paralleling the conversation that took place with Caiaphas a few hours before. So if you compare Matthew, or Mark 15 with Mark 14, Pilate said, Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? Whereas in the account of the high priest, it said, the high priest questioned Jesus, saying, do you not answer? Pilate said, see how many charges they bring against you? Caiaphas said, Was it, what is it that these men are testifying against you? Mark 15 says, Jesus made no further answer. Mark 14 said, but he kept silent and did not answer. The two accounts, the two confrontations, the two trials, religious and civil, are almost exactly parallel with one another. And Christ again is silent because he has resigned himself to his Father's will, 
which was to save his enemies, which meant the sacrifice of his son. And frustrated with his silence, the chief priest began to accuse him harshly, adding to the accusations against him. And so, for example, Luke reminds us of another accusation they made. He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. In other words, he's raising riots. He's fomenting rebellion. He's increasing dissent. This is a dangerous man that you need to put down. And at this point, another group enters the scene. And in the early hour, another group of Jews had come to Pilate to receive another official pronouncement. And we get this in Mark 15, 6 and following. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. And the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. So powerful people then had the authority to release people who had been imprisoned uh, just like they do today. They could grant clemency. They could release a prisoner. And this had become a tradition that Pilate would release a Jewish prisoner that seemed especially appropriate during Passover, which was a festival celebrating the release of uh, Jews from their Gentile oppressors. So they go and they seem to want a particular man named Barabbas. And he had been one associated with the insurrectionist. He was involved in the insurrection. So 30 years later, Mark, who's writing this at the uh, voice as the scribe of Peter, can simply refer to, oh, that was the insurrection. Those were the insurrectionists. This was a famous incident at the time. People knew who it was. Barabbas was a known figure in it. He is referred to as a robber, or more likely a bandit, as a murderer, as a notorious prisoner likely a leader in this revolt that took place in the city of Jerusalem itself. And many commentators think that the robbers or the thieves crucified on either side of Christ were in fact bandits who were involved in this insurrection. So this was a notorious man associated with a notorious event. And the crowd went up to him and began asking him to do what he usually did in the season, which was to free him. Now, interestingly, there is an account in some of the manuscripts we have of Matthew that the full name of Barabbas was Jesus Barabbas. And scholars tend to think that that was likely because why would Christians add the name Jesus to a known insurrectionist if it wasn't true? And Jesus, or the Hebrew Joshua, was a common name at the time, which then makes this poetically a choice between the two Jesuses. But whether or not it's Jesus Barabbas or Barabbas, there's a choice being offered to the Jewish crowd and an interesting contrast presented. Jesus was falsely accused of insurrection. Barabbas was actually guilty of insurrection. Jesus actually taught to be submissive to governing authorities, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, whereas Barabbas had actually led a revolt against Caesar. Jesus was involved in teaching and healing, Barabbas in robbing and killing, Jesus told Peter to put up his sword when he took it out and struck the ear off the servant Malthus. Barabbas was encouraging Jews to take up their swords in rebellion against Rome. Jesus had surrendered himself to the soldiers, whereas Barabbas had been captured unwittingly. Jesus was appointed by God into his ministry. Barabbas was a self-appointed deliverer of Israel from their Roman oppressors. 
Jesus was promoting the kingdom of heaven. Barabbas was leading an earthly kingdom against the Romans, restoring self-rule to Israel. Jesus was the Messiah, Barabbas a murderer. Jesus was condemned by the crowd, Barabbas was acclaimed by the crowd. Jesus was innocent yet condemned, Barabbas was condemned and yet innocent. And now they have a choice. Pilate's choice is clear. It's given in the way that he phrases it. Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews whom he assumes they know as Jesus? For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. Pilate's motives are mixed. Uh, one, he knew that releasing a teacher would be less likely to raise questions before other Romans than someone who was a convicted insurrectionist. He also knew that the high priest's motives were malicious, that it was because of envy over Jesus' popularity that they wanted Jesus killed. We also have from the other accounts that John records a private interview between Pilate and Jesus, where he says, is it true that you are the Son of God? And Jesus said, it is as you say. And it says, Pilate grew very afraid that there was something in his interview with Christ, there was something in his private interactions with Jesus that made him think, there's something about this man, and I'm nervous about handling him in this way. And then Matthew records Pilate's wife, who history gives the name Procura, coming to him and saying, I have been greatly pained in a dream because of this man, have nothing to do with him. So there's many things going on in Pilate that are wanting them to accept Jesus rather than Barabbas. And maybe sensing this, the chief priest stirred up the crowds to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And so we see the crowds make their choice. Answering again, Pilate said to them, What shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Now, this would have been a detestable thing for any Jew to have called out for because crucifixion was the most terrible execution invented by man. A Roman citizen couldn't be crucified. That's why Paul was beheaded when he was martyred, but Peter was crucified because they would not do this to a Roman citizen. It was reserved for those in the outskirts and those that were oppressed. We'll talk more about crucifixion next week. But the fact that the Jews were calling for this, the fact that the chief priests would have manipulated them to do this, shows just how great their antagonism to Christ was. And Matthew adds that a riot began to start. And so in fear over a riot, in yielding to the crowd, the crowd having made their choice, Pilate makes his choice. And the text says that he turned him over to be scourged, and then he handed him over to be crucified. Scourging was an anticipation of crucifixion. Um, we might have in our mind the idea of someone being whipped, but it was actually much more gruesome than this. They would have taken the prisoner, stripped him, bound his, heads, his hands to a post above his head, and then two Roman soldiers would have taken turns beating his back with a leather thong embedded with bones and bits of metal so that it not merely lashed, but gripped and tore and literally ripped the back to shreds. And that's what Christ was subjected to. 
When I was in seminary, uh, the movie The Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson directed came out, and I was given an opportunity to see an early preview of that through a DTS professor. And the most sobering scene of the movie was the scourging, in all honesty. And this terrible silence settled over in the theater. And I really can't recommend the film because it was such a gruesome scene. But again, Christ subjected himself to this, all in anticipation of the worst that was coming because then he was handed over to be crucified. Next week, we'll follow our Lord to Calvary. But today we want to reflect on what this civil trial reveals about our Lord and the lessons it has to teach us. Firstly, the civil trial of Jesus confirms his innocence. He was tried by Pilate who found him innocent. He was tried by Herod who found him innocent. He was tried again by Pilate who found him innocent. Jesus was indeed a spotless lamb who was worthy to be the sacrifice for the sins of men. Secondly, we see the courage of Christ. Jesus knew what was coming. Back in Mark 10, this was his prophetic word to the disciples, that they will mock him, they will spit him, they will scourge him, and they will kill him. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen when he yielded himself to the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane, and yet he went willingly. G.K. Chesterton said, Alone of all the creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of its creator. That God the Almighty entered into creation and submitted himself to the hands of fallen men and uh, people who would torment him. And Jesus, knowing this, went nonetheless. Which reveals additionally his submissiveness to his Father's will. That Jesus had prayed in agony, sweating like blood, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But it wasn't possible. Not if we were going to be saved. Because someone had to bear the wrath of God. Someone had to pay the penalty for sin. And if it wasn't going to be us, it had to be Christ. And so he went willingly in full submission, no matter how gruesome and terrible it was going to be. We see the love of Christ. That what kept him bound wasn't leather ties, but his love for us. The Gospel account of John of the Upper Room Discourse says, Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. That if you were to say, what kept him there? One answer would be submission to the Father. Another equally honest biblical answer would be because his love for us was so great. Christ loved us so much that he allowed himself to endure this because Christ is love and he came in love to save us. And we see this beautiful picture of the substitutionary sacrifice of even as Barabbas went free because someone else took his place, so we're able to go free because someone else took our place. Again, what is going on here isn't just the mistreatment of a good man. It's not just the, the great injustice in human history. It is a substitute so that we would not have to suffer the wrath of God. So that God could redeem sinners without compromising His holiness, He sent His Son to take our place. And as we go through this, we're reminded this, were done, this was done that we might go free. Christ was in bondage that we might be released. 
Christ suffered that we might not. Christ died that we might live. Christ was forsaken of the Father that we might be reconciled. And all of this had to take place because this was the cost of the gospel. So what are some of the lessons that it teaches about us? First of all, that we should promote God's kingdom, not ours. Everyone else in the story is promoting their own agenda. The Sanhedrin opposed Christ because he threatened their position and their privileges. Pilate gave Jesus over to the crowds, even though he knew it was wrong because he feared that his position might be threatened. Barabbas was leading an uprising because he thought that would be the kingdom that Israel needed. And the reality is our hope is not in either achieving and preserving and promoting our own small kingdoms or in establishing a perfect heaven on earth, but rather our sole hope and our chief goal in the midst of this fallen world is to pursue the kingdom of heaven, which must be pursued sacrificially, not triumphally. It's going to involve some suffering. It's going to involve submission to the Father's will to hard things. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So on Thursday nights, we're reading a beautiful book called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozier. And in the chapter that we read for uh, this last Thursday, he said that in order for us to truly seek and find God, we have to let go and release the possessions of this world because they possess us. And the reality is God is a good creator, filled this world with delightful things for us to enjoy, with good things for us to employ. But the problem is, is they take root in our souls. Uh, Tozier's language was, they, seek, they, they sink their fibrous roots deep in our hearts and we get distracted. And all of us, just by nature being sinners, selfishly pursue our own kingdoms. But they have to be forsaken if we truly pursue the kingdom of God. Thirdly, promoting God's kingdom requires allegiance to God's King, Jesus. There is no way to the Father except through the Son. There is no reconciliation with God apart from Jesus. 1 John 2.23 just says directly, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And so in this world, as Alan said, People have many things that they think should be done with Jesus. Ignore him, mock him, shut him up, kill him. And those associated with him will be mistreated as well. But there is no identification with God's kingdom without identifying ourselves with God's king. And that's going to, again, lead to some challenges for us. Because, fourthly, allegiance to King Jesus is costly, but rejecting him is costlier. Eleven of the twelve disciples died a martyr's death. And the only one historically who died a natural death, John, 
suffered in exile on Patmos. Jesus said, the world hates me, it will hate you if you follow after me. And so there is a cost to following Christ that we have to be prepared to pay. But the cost of rejecting Christ is much higher. And all of those who did so suffer in this world and then suffer eternally in the world to come. And finally, in a closing reminder, allegiance to King Jesus is worth the cost because God's kingdom is coming. The king is coming. And when he comes, he comes triumphant. And even though he might suffer now, he's coming in all of his glory. Even though he was humbled now, he's coming in all of the divine radiance of his heavenly presence. And even though we now are going to suffer if we identify ourselves with him, we will be redeemed and live with him forever and ever if we're true and loyal to the end. And it's worth it. Um, we get a vivid picture of this in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you remember how Aslan surrendered himself to the white witch and to the assembled allies that she had gathered at the stone table. Here's Lewis's vivid description. Though the moon was shining, many of the wicked people carried torches which burned with evil-looking red flames and blad smoke. And oh, such people, ogres with monstrous teeth and wolves and bull-headed men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants, and other creatures whom I won't describe, because if I did, the grown-ups probably wouldn't let me read you this book. <laughs> Cruels and hags and incubuses, wraiths and horrors and ifrites, sprites, orknights, wusses and ettins. In fact, here were all those who were on the witch's side and whom the wolf had summoned at her command. And then Aslan comes, and they begin to abuse him. The four hags, grinning and leering, hanging back half afraid, yet bind him at the white witch's command. And when they found that he made no resistance, they shrieked in triumph. And then others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help them. And between them, they rolled the huge lion round his back and bound his paws. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down and snip, snip, snip with the shears and masses of curling gold that fell to the ground. And the ogre stood back and the children watched from their hiding place, Aslan looking small and different without his mane. Why, he's only a big cat after all, cried one. Is this what we were afraid of? Here, puss puss, here, poor pussy. How many mice have you caught today, cat? Would you like a saucer of milk? And Lucy, with tears pouring down her cheeks, said, oh, the brutes, the brutes. And Aslan allowed himself to be humbled, to be mocked, to be jeered to be sheared, to be mistreated, and to die. But you know that he doesn't remain dead, because though there were deep magic, there was deeper magic still. And the lion rose, and he returned, and with a roar he enters into the field where it looks like Peter and the peers and the army are being overwhelmed by the wicked. And then it says, Aslan's army looked terribly few, and there were statues dotted all over the battlefield where the white witch had frozen them with her wand, and she herself was fighting with her stone knife. Off my back, children, shouted Aslan, and they tumbled off, and with a roar that shook all night, from the western lamppost to the shores of the eastern sea, the great beast flung himself upon the white witch. 
lion and witch rolled together and the witch underneath. And at that same moment, all the warlike creatures whom Aslan had led from the witch's house rushed on the enemy's lines. Dwarfs with their battle axes, dogs with teeth, the giant with his club, unicorns with their horns, centaurs with swords and hoofs. And Peter's tired army cheered, and the newcomers roared, and the enemy squealed and gibbered till the wood re-echoed with the din of the onset. And the battle was over a few minutes after it had begun. And of course, we know from Revelation that even this is more dramatic than it will actually be. That when Christ returns on his white steed with the sword coming out of his mouth, coming with his saints, and all the forces of Satan and his enemies are rallied against him, Christ doesn't even sully his hands. An angel is sent, and in a moment, the enemies of God are cast into the lake of fire. So here we see Christ humbled. We will see him return glorious. And of course, the urging for us is to love our Lord more of one who would subject himself to this for our sake, and to swear our allegiance to King Christ, to live to promote his kingdom, and to live in the hope of his return and of his restoration of this fallen planet with a new earth, of our living with him in glorified bodies forever and ever, because this is the cost of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, and the glory of the gospel, and this is worth committing our lives to. Would you pray with me? Father, it's hard to read these words as they mistreat your son and as wicked men deride him and as cruel men beat him and as we're not done with the mistreatment yet. And the horror of horror still awaits. And so, Lord, we are mindful that this was done for our sake, that this doesn't just display the malice of men but the love of God of one who loved the world so much that you would send your son to be treated this way that whoever believes in, believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. That the grace that we enjoy, the free gift of salvation offered in the gospel was purchased at the suffering of this one. So Lord, may we love you more, love him more as we are reminded of what our salvation cost. While there's time, would we admit and acknowledge that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves and would we side ourselves with Christ and not with those opposed against him? Would we forsake pursuing our own kingdom that we might enter and promote the kingdom of God? And would all of our hopes be placed in the return of Christ, of his restoration of this planet, of his reconciliation of sinners with you and of the great reunion of the creation with the creator someday? And we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.